welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Matt Bruckner, an associate professor of law at Howard University School of Law. My guest tonight is C.J. Ryan, associate professor at Roger Williams University School of Law, and we'll be talking about his new article, Paying for Law School, Law Student Loan Indebtedness and Career Choices. C.J., welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Um, so I'd love to just have you give us maybe the article's sort of elevator pitch. You know, what's your thesis? What are your main arguments? What's novel here? So I became interested in this question and doing my doctoral dissertation research on the economics of legal education and uh, seeing that the cost of legal education has really tripled or even quadrupled over the last 20 or so years gave me pause. And as a relatively recent graduate of law school, um, it was something that I thought um, needed greater sort of analysis and uh, one of the things that I wanted to look at specifically was student borrowing patterns over this time. And so in doing my dissertation research, I collected data from four uh, national law schools. I'm not at liberty to say which law schools, but they sort of adhere to a um, typology that I can describe as one was a private elite law school, another a public flagship law school. And uh, another a public regional law school, and finally a private newer law school, non-elite. And I think they represent a, a, a fairly nice cross-section of the various types of law schools that exist in the country uh, that are accredited by the American Bar Association and that adhere more or less to tiers of uh, reputational quality. And so um, in collecting data from these law schools, I was trying to answer a few questions, including questions about why the students chose that law school. But I sort of baked into my survey questions about students' levels of indebtedness, the, the cost of legal education that they were bearing individually, and how they were paying for law school, and as well as a series of questions about their sort of attitudes toward financial risk. And um, I think I got some really good data enough to answer, at least from a perspective that was satisfactory to me about uh, how they felt about their 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 options to, to repay their their debts that they were incurring to to, to study um, law and get a JD. And so um, this paper really deals with the role of law student loan indebtedness on their career choices, the the types of law that they want to practice and the types of jobs that they want to pursue. And um, that was the the seed that that sort of germinated um, throughout this the last couple of years, and and I've been able to sort of I think link a lot of the existing literature on the role of debt and its effect on career choices with my own findings, and that that's what I present in the paper. That's great. Say, so, I mean, student indebtedness is obviously a big issue. I saw just today a headline that uh, that indebtedness now tops one point seven trillion dollars, and uh, law school uh, law students are a particular concern. They borrow, uh, you know, more than certainly the average undergraduate student. Um, what are your uh, main findings in the paper? Well, descriptively, I find that the types of students that are incurring the greatest amounts of debt, pretty unsurprisingly, are um, students that come from lower SES backgrounds as proxied by parental education and parental earnings, uh, but also students that come from underrepresented minority backgrounds and, um, to a large degree, women. And this sort of confirms the descriptive trends that um, other 
scholars in the area have noted about levels of indebtedness in, for for law students. Um, so I think that's I think at least a, a useful descriptive finding. But the empirical findings are, um, to my mind, a little more challenging about what what it is that we should do with from the legal within the legal academy about how to address um, student loan indebtedness and ultimately um, the factors I think that are interesting to me um, in terms of this this relationship this causal relationship between debt and career choice I find that um, you know overwhelmingly students from uh, underrepresented minority backgrounds, lower SES backgrounds, and women are sort of relying on the PSLF program as a means for paying back their their substantial law school debt. And I think it really makes a strong argument for uh, keeping the PSLF around. Uh, these are students who desire to work in the public sector and see the PSLF program as really their only means of escaping their seemingly insurmountable debt. Um, and uh, and serving in careers that have uh, substantially less financial remuneration uh, options for them. Um, yeah, so the, you know the public service loan forgiveness uh, program, you say, is a way that some of these students feel like they can repay their debt. Uh, and uh, so certainly, you know, later in the paper, um, I feel like you talk about. Um, how the program could counter uh, what you'd refer to as a sort of public service drift and to the access to justice gap. Um, uh, but at times, or earlier in the paper, you talk about just the you know the enormous costs of the program and its uh, sort of you know difficulty of, of maybe being financially sustainable, um, which seems like a real a real tension. And so, um, do you feel like you uh, are um, you know so? What are your views about the public service loan forgiveness program and its you know importance to um, law students to law schools going forward? So I think first and foremost, the cost of legal education is something that has to be addressed, and there's no silver bullet to 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 do that. I think um, the public service loan forgiveness program isn't narrowly tailored to address the, the rising cost of higher education more generally and, and specifically the, the rising cost of legal education. But um, we know that there is a substantial access to justice gap, which I sort of operationalize as the unmet legal need in this country. And, and um, the public service loan forgiveness program is is working. I think it is incentivizing um, graduates to take on public sector jobs, public facing jobs, where they're serving critical public need. So I think the PSLF program helps in many ways to solve that access to justice gap. I also think it it um, it helps to maybe reduce the the public interest drift. That is, if students see that the their cost of, of legal education to them is um, something that can be mitigated by the by loan forgiveness, then they're more apt to take on those types of jobs that they maybe came to law school to do in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so I think the PSLF program, uh, while not a silver bullet, is is particularly apt at addressing the public interest drift and the access um, to justice gap. Um, with respect to the, the question about um, the cost of the public service loan forgiveness program, it's 
very costly. I think there's there's no question about that. And, and the funding that the Department of Education has received to fulfill its obligation to um, to forgive these loans is is not really um, something that is that is sustainable at current levels of appropriation for the program, especially given that that there's you know expected to be a new wave of borrowers who are going to become eligible for forgiveness. Um, uh, and so as a result, I think, you know, Congress and, and, uh, and the, uh, the presidential administration sort of need to fund the, fund the PSLF program at the right level um, to make that promise a reality. Okay, so your concern is mostly just that uh, funding levels are insufficient, uh, but um, are, uh, you know, you know, endorse the program as one that is a, a valuable expenditure of, uh, you know, taxpayer dollars. We're sort of uh, doing right by uh, students in the country by uh, forgiving their uh, uh, their law school debt. Um, uh, even though you do it, uh, one point I think suggests that um, the program may even be increasing uh, rather than helping to control costs in law schools because students may uh, feel freer to, um, you know, borrow more money since they expect someone else will repay it. I think that's the biggest, uh, at least stated uh, con of the program, or I should say um, the, the those who are critical of the PSLF program note that there is a, a sort of um, problem with overborrowing, or, or at least that students aren't as um, that the, the debt loads that they incur aren't aren't terribly salient to them with the promise of possible forgiveness, right? And so I think that's that is a real uh, structural issue with the PSLF program, but it's not one I think that on the margins um, is going to motivate a student whether or not to participate in the program. Um, I I really think truly those students who are taking advantage of the of the, the program's forgiveness element um, have given up a lot of opportunity costs, right? They've stayed in, in this, in, in a public service role for, for over 10 years when they could have been um, in private practice or some other field. And so um, I'm not as concerned, I think about that as, as many of the critics are, but I reference that, that criticism because I think it is a valid one. Mm-hmm. Um well, you know the. I mean, I, well, I'm sure you know the. You know the approval rates have been. I don't know. What I mean, uh, really abysmal. I mean, terribly, terribly low. And so, uh, curious how much um, you know uh, students would be willing to you know borrow um, maximum amount possible uh, on the hope of getting forgiveness. Since I mean, what was the uh, what was the approval rate uh, this last year? Was did it hit one percent? It was a, it was about one percent, which it, which you're right is abysmally low. And I expect, and, and other forecasters have expected that rate to go up substantially. A big reason was uh, just this past week, the Department of Education announced that they're merging both the PSLF um, and the temporary expansion of the PSLF program applications. That they were technically two separate applications. And so, so many temporary expansion PSLF applicants were denied because they hadn't applied for PSLF forgiveness. They were two separate sort of forms that one had to fill out. And so um, there was also a tremendous amount of uh, sort of clerical errors that, that students encountered in, in trying to uh, file their applications and, and learned that they were denied because the clerical errors had um, foreclosed them 
from being forgiven on their first application. So uh, many folks expect that that this number um, of the approval rate will will increase in in the very near term, and um, and so I think that the the one percent approval rate was really just kind of a an issue of the the system sort of working out the kinks, as it were. Yeah, uh, my my understanding is that the program has just been uh, really administratively uh, complex for borrowers to to comply with. Um, um, so you know, you, you talk in the paper about the benefits of uh, PSLF and uh, you know um, about this access to justice gap and uh, public interest drift. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about those? Um, um, you know, what what are they, and, and how does PSLF? Um, uh, remedy those problems? So I'll first address the the access to justice gap. Um, I think the Legal Services Corporation and other uh, organizations have have studied and identified this access to justice gap as uh, the amount of unmet legal need that's met in this country. And it's substantial. I think uh, the Legal Services Corporation estimates that um, about 70% of folks who encounter severe civil legal problems in this country are either um, unable to or, or unsuccessful at, at securing legal representation in those matters. And so I, I, I think the PSLF, by incentivizing law students to pursue careers in the public sector, is uh, is one mechanism, right? One, hopefully, of, of many more that, that need to be aimed at targeting the access to justice gap, but it's one mechanism that can help to reduce that that dramatically large number of folks who who need and, and, and want representation. Um, with respect to the to the to the the, the public interest drift, uh, it's not a term that that I coined by any means. It's it's something that's been identified by folks who sort of study legal education from perhaps a sociological perspective and thinking about the way that law school might orient students to uh, more private sector careers, right? And, and the types of courses that they take that are prescribed in the 1L curriculum and otherwise, that there is a inherently sort of private um, orientation toward the law school, to, toward legal education. Uh, and, and, and I think that, uh, you know, it's it's no, um, it's sort of no secret that many law students are choosing to go to law school, particularly with recent increases in law school enrollment, um, noted as the Trump bump, that, that students are really seeking to, to be forces of, of social change. Um, and so to the extent that legal education removes that that orientation from them or orients them in a different way. That's what the public interest drift, um, I think, is is trying to, to capture uh, this this the way in which students might come to law school for a public interest reason and ultimately end up taking jobs in the private sector, either because they're much more lucrative or because they feel that their training is has sort of led them toward that path. And so I think that the public service loan forgiveness program um, is one one mechanism to 
to reduce that that drift. It, it basically says if you want to pursue this career, right, it, it's it's not foreclosed to you, even if you're taking out substantial loans to attend law school, that you can still go that route. You can still help the people in your community and, and more broadly in society if that's if that's something you choose to to spend 10 years of your um, you know early practice do doing. And so um, I, I really feel that that the PSLF program is sort of maybe undersold in, in, in that regard, that it, that it has a, um, has real and, and impactful, um, ways of, of, of ensuring that students who are so oriented are able to stay on a public sector leaning track. I can see how it, you know, it certainly makes that, uh, financially affordable with the rising cost of law school to make it possible to take a job like that. I mean, I remember when I started in law school, I was talking with the career services director about a job that he was offered, uh, that he felt that he just couldn't afford to take. Um, and so, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, having loan forgiveness that would make that job possible to take, I think is very appealing, but it certainly doesn't affect the sort of, you know, the socialization uh, aspects you're talking about or, you know, um, the early hiring uh, done by large law firms, right? It's um, you know, appealing, I think, to lots of students to have a job in hand uh, early, um, um, you know, and you're right, right? Law schools sort of um, uh, push their students to take these jobs as well. And public service loan forgiveness is not going to help with those problems, right? Yeah, I think it 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 helps to level the playing field somewhat, and and that's the real um, issue here is that it, it's I think it's hard to to turn the wheel of the law school socialization sort of uh, evenly as between private and public sector jobs, and and certainly it's hard for public sector employers to compete with the types of salaries that that entry level um, you know law graduates are able to to earn. In, in private sector jobs, but for students who are maybe um, interested, at least in, in the public sector, it, it, as I say, levels the playing field. It, it allows them to see that they're not going to be destitute if they if they plan to go that route, because PSLF is based on um, you know an income-driven repayment plan, so their their initial loan repayments are not going to be outrageous. And um, should they choose to to stay in the in the public sector role for for ten years, their their loans will be forgiven. So, um, what remains of it anyway after paying into the program for ten years? So I, I think you know it it is it's an uphill battle that 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 public sector employers are having to fight. Um, and I know that public sector employers are very fond of uh, giving as much information to potential, uh, you know, hires about this program as a means for being competitive with private sector employers. And so to, to remove the program, I think, removes any real footing that public and sector, public sector employers have for, for recruiting entry-level students who, who acquire uh, significant debt to, to, to attend law school. It's still also a long time, right? I mean, uh, a lot of my students are, um, relatively recent college grads, 23, 24, uh, and the idea of spending, you know, 10 years in a, uh, a role that, uh, they may have, um, little exposure with too. That's, that's just also just a, uh, um, a substantial period of, uh, of their career. Um, um, 
you have any thoughts about the mechanism by which the program uh, operates? And, you know, is that 10-year period of time a sort of a sensible uh, benchmark for forgiveness? So, you know, I've actually been thinking about this in the context of uh, the Democratic candidate debates and, and various um, sort of reforms that have been proposed to the program. You know, I, I actually was talking with my students today about the statute of limitations in adverse possession actions and comparing, for instance, a state like Arkansas, which has a seven-year statute of limitations for um, for adverse possession to accrue, but Pennsylvania has like a 21-year statute of limitation or something like that. And you know, there are there are different approaches that that could be used here. the The advantage of having, uh, uh, I think, a lower statute of limitation for adverse possession claims is that it gets the property in the hands of the highest and best user sooner. Uh, and the disadvantage of having a, a short uh, window like that is that, you know, it lets the, the, the true landowner it increases their, their monitoring costs, right. For, for adverse possessors. Similarly, I think the PSLF program window is sort of arbitrarily set at 10 years. I mean, I'm not sure that a decade in, in public sector service is necessarily the best approach, right? I think um, something shorter might be I might be more ideal, might be more optimal. Um, perhaps perhaps seven years is uh, a better benchmark for for determining that the student has you know really committed to this type of work and and has uh, made an impactful um, you know career decision where they're serving their community for a substantial period of time. And you mentioned that many of your students are 23, 24 coming out. I, you know, th those students, it sounds to me, would be those just out of undergraduate when they're starting law school. And, um, you know, by the time they're, they're 30 to be, to be basically um, out from under their, their debt obligations would be sensible. Yeah. I guess I was also thinking maybe that, um, instead of a 10-year uh, period of time or a seven-year period of time, that there could be sort of, you know, 10% of your loans forgiven every year or something along those lines so that you weren't sort of uh, um, uh, held to sort of working in this job for 10, uh, for, for 10 years. Because it sounds like there's a lot of, uh, you talk about the access to justice gap, a lot of unmet legal need. And uh, if folks are willing to move, you know, you talk also particularly about sort of needs in sort of rural areas, people willing to move to... Um, rural areas and provide uh, legal services for even shorter periods of time, it would seem like that would be um, something worth encouraging. And to that end, several um, sort of reform proposals have tried to do just that or, or proposed at least some amount of forgiveness after the first two and a half years, uh, half forgiveness after five years, and then uh, sort of incremental amounts after that. Um, that might be a more reasonable approach. I, I, I don't know what the, the right solution is, but I, I, I do think that 10 years um, for any forgiveness is, is definitely uh, too long. I think to your point, um, it's, it's possible that, you know, sort of an incremental approach might actually be greater at addressing the, the access to justice gap uh, and might incentivize far more students to, to go uh, a public sector route for the initial years of their um, practicing careers upon graduation um, and, and, and address that need sooner. Yeah. Um, so the 
I was interested a lot in also in the, the, the piece about the access to justice gap, which is uh, not um, something in terms of you know, provision of legal services that I uh, um, think about sort of um, holistically. I'm you know, involved with legal service organizations here in, uh, in D.C., an organization called ZDAC, um, uh, that provides uh, legal services to low-income D.C. residents, particularly on sort of consumer uh, financial issues. Um, it seemed like, you know, the, some of the focus you had was about, again, sort of rural areas. And um, uh, you say that, you know, lots of people who uh, with legal problems don't seek legal help. Um, and I guess my first thought was that, um, and I, I, I said this previously to you, that, um, you know, I... If I have a, if I'm not feeling well, I don't go to the doctor right away. Uh, I go to the doctor uh, if I've got some sort of, um, some, you know, really acute pain or uh, something's really um, um, pushing me to go. And so I was curious about this um, this access to justice gap. And um, you know, you having read the literature a lot more, um, what do you think about the claims that there is this huge uh, unmet legal need? Uh, and will public service loan forgiveness encourage people to? meet that need in particularly for people who live in, in rural areas? So um, my answer to your question is sort of twofold. With respect to the, the first part, um, I think that the the access to justice gap that the Legal Services Corporation defines in, in its studies um, is thinking about acute problems, right? Th- those Those more severe problems that essentially require representation and uh, really disadvantage folks who would represent themselves pro se or or just sort of let the process play out without counsel. Um, and and as as such, uh, I think that that the public service loan forgiveness program presents a, a really useful mechanism for for addressing that need, regardless of where um, the the client would would be located. Um, but I don't know if you saw in the American Bar Association Journal this this past month or this, this current month, rather, the cover story was a story titled No Country for Rural Lawyers. There's there's a major problem in this country of um, of, att- of attorneys being located in rural areas. There just aren't enough of them. And, and many lawyers um, that do represent clients in rural areas, particularly in the middle of the country, have to drive um, tens, if not a hundred miles um, to, to meet with their clients because there are no more lawyers in these in these small communities that, that once had them. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think combined with the fact that there is a, a, a sort of recent phenomenon in which particularly millennials are locating themselves in in less urban areas to to have lower costs of living. I think the PSLF program actually could sort of ride that uh, descriptive uh, population out migration wave um, and help to address the 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 really dire need for for lawyers in, in rural areas and um, you know incentivize students to pursue that that path. That's interesting. I, I my sort of sense was that uh, that you know uh, millennials all wanted to live in sort of uh, uh, urban cores. Um, like you're saying that folks are getting priced out and are moving uh, moving out. Um, uh, this has also been an issue for uh, for doctors too for a long time. My understanding is that uh, that that there's been a sort of a um, a shortage of um, so maybe it's just a shortage of sort of uh, professionals or uh, medical legal professionals living in sort of more more rural areas. Um, um, 
Um, all right, well, this is um, a little bit less my area of expertise, but um, I was hoping you would uh, uh, tell the audience a little bit more about your, um, uh, your, your, uh, your empirical analysis, a little bit more about the, the findings you had uh, from your surveys of these uh, students of these four different law schools. Sure. So um, the initial tables that I present in, in, in the fourth part of the article um, are descriptive in nature. They, they essentially say, you know, patterns of uh, students in terms of their intentions to enroll in the public service loan forgiveness program by, for instance, race or uh, the debt that they have uh, or expect to have upon graduation. And um, those are fairly, I think, easy to interpret. I, I tried to put them in terms of uh, percentages of students in each category by the, the school that they're attending. Um, in the results section of that same part, I, uh, I use um, uh, a, a model called a logistic regression model. And, and this is different from an ordinary least squares re regression model, which is sort of the standard approach to regression in that it bounds uh, a dichotomous dependent variable, which means that, you know, the, the student's intention to enroll in PSLF or, or to choose a public sector program, I coded as basically zero or one, right? And so if you have a dichotomous variable like that or a binary um, dependent variable like that, um, the problem with using an ordinarily squares approach is that the probabilities that the student will will um, choose that as expressed in the coefficients of the independent variables will not be bounded by zero and one in an OLS approach. But a logistic regression does bound um, the, the dependent variable between zero and one. So all the tables that I present in my regression results um, are looking at the likelihood that a student has a public service career intention or um, it plans to participate in the PSLF program in terms of odds ratios. And odds ratios are, they're, they're tricky. Um, they're tricky for one reason to interpret, but I think I've, I've done a decent job in terms of interpreting them for the reader. Basically, the number one um, represents that net of all other sort of controls that a student is about the same on average as uh, their counterpart or the counterfactual um, to choose to, for instance, participate in PSLF or to, to have an intention to pursue a public service career. So any number over one represents a percentage increase in their odds of choosing that, that career path or the participation in PSLF. Uh, any number below one represents a decreased odds for that group of, of choosing that career path or, or PSLF participation. And so um, just kind of serially going through the, the findings here, um, I find that, you know, with respect to a, a student's intention to pursue a public service interest career, um, students who come from uh, homes where their parents earned uh, incrementally $50,000 more. That represents uh, about a 21 percentage odd decrease or likelihood that they would 
choose to, to elect for a public service career upon graduating. Students who do better in law school by, by one-tenth of a GPA point, so a 3.1 versus a 3.0 or a 3.6 versus a 3.5, that one-tenth of a GPA point represents a, about a 12% reduction in the odds that they would, for instance, choose a, a public service career. And then as cost of attendance rises by um, by tens of thousands, by ten thousand um, dollars, for every ten thousand dollars, it represents about a about a, a uh, roughly a, a five percent decrease in likelihood the student would elect for a public service career upon graduating. Um, so just to be clear, what you're saying is that uh, students from wealthier families who uh, have a higher law school GPA um, are uh, substantially less likely to engage to, to have public service careers. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so I, you know, I think this speaks to sort of the um, Bordeauxian model of social reproduction. You know, the the Pierre Bourdieu uh, idea is that. Um, you know, parents sort of uh, inculcate in their children these ideals of, um, you know, what what a career and what education should be. And so it's it's very likely that students who come from wealthier homes are going to be more attracted to uh, private sector careers than, than public service careers, at least in the in terms of this analytic sample that I have. That's 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 the finding. Right. And so. Um, this also speaks, I think, somewhat to the point that you were making earlier about, you know, the public interest drift and the fact that public sector employees, private sector employees, rather, are very good at recruiting early. Um, and, and I find that students with better GPAs are, are, are about 12% less likely. For every one-tenth of a GPA point, they're less likely to, to want to pursue a public service interest career. And, and then also... And does that, does, that, does that have any sort of cutoff, right? Is there some, uh, is that, uh, is that because uh, students, you know, with a, you know, whatever, a three, five and above are more likely to be recruited into sort of large law firms. And so they, they, uh, you know, they're attracted by the uh, early um, uh, sort of hiring patterns of large law firms. Does that sort of, uh, does that sort of hold all the way down the GPA spectrum uh, or does it, is there some sort of, you know, level at which, um these students are unlikely to be recruited into whatever am law 100 firms. And so therefore um, they're sort of a little bit, uh, this sort of um, early hiring patterns or, or um, sort of the larger salaries are sort of just less available to them. So in this particular model, when I'm looking at just public service career intentions, I had all four law schools in there, which included the, the private elite law school in the second one, the PSLF intention, I had three and not the private elite, uh, but the other three law schools. So uh, to answer your question, there is um, there, there are observations that I have uh, in the in the sort of the full analytic sample with, with all four law schools. There are uh, observations that I see with students above, for instance, a three seven GPA that are that are interested in public service careers, but they are. Um, they are the exception rather than the rule. And, and so this isn't all the way down the GPA spectrum, but I think it is, it's definitely looking at students sort of um, uh, around that, that sort of maybe 
three three to to three six range because that's that was the mode kind of area uh, for for GPAs in my analytic sample. Okay, yeah, I mean, I found this section of the paper sort of um, you know I, I'm not an empiricist and sort of deciding whether sort of using uh, you know ordinary least squared uh, analysis or regressions is the um, is, is you know an appropriate or inappropriate choice is not you know I'm uh, some sense of what what you're saying with it, but I found this section really very readable and sort of the conclusions you draw from it um, um, you know uh, interesting and engaging um, and um, hopefully. Um, um, you know, we'll sort of be able to draw some additional conclusions uh, from it. Is there, is there more about this section? You think you, there are there other interesting conclusions that you took away from uh, um, this analysis? Yeah. So, so I haven't really spoken much about um, Table Four just yet, and um, and so what I find in in Table Four, which is the the public service program participation intentions, is that by and large. The students who are most likely to to want to participate in this program, the, the largest effects I see are are based on um, gender and, and race. And uh, women in in my analytic sample were about three times as likely um, as their male counterparts at a statistically significant level to to have an intention to participate in in this program. And likewise, um, for for race, uh, almost two times as likely for an underrepresented racial minority to want to participate in this program than their white counterparts. And so um, what that tells me is that, you know, we know descriptively that that women and underrepresented minorities tend to carry greater debt loads and also tend to be sort of more represented in public sector careers than their white and, and male counterparts um, on the whole. And so the idea that they would also be saddled with this with this debt and entering um, sort of lower uh, lower pay positions and not have uh, the PSLF program to uh, to sort of help them get out of that debt um, after serving in the career for ten years uh, is is really alarming to me because of the recent sort of calls for the elimination of the program and so I I wanted to to sort of highlight that that descriptive fact that is um, revealed in my in my empirical findings thanks yeah and I, I know that uh you drew on some of the um i always forget the other acronym since the lsse law school survey of student engagement data um and um, you know they talked about uh, this issue you're, you're discussing but also you know the larger issue i think that uh, aaron taylor described is the reverse robin hood effect of the students who um, you know, uh, based on their incoming credentials, are sort of least likely to um, uh, be successful in law school and have high-paying jobs, able to re, um, uh, you know, uh, service all of their debt, or also most likely to uh, incur the most debt uh, for law school and subsidize their, um, you know, um, classmates with higher incoming credentials who are, I think, statistically more likely to have the um, higher paying jobs post-graduation. Um, so I think this is a real, uh, a real issue and I appreciate you highlighting this. Oh, it, it was my pleasure. And, and, you know, Aaron Taylor and, and his work is, is so important. And um, I have to give a shout out to Access Lex Institute, which he is a, um, a, a senior director there. And uh, they, they actually helped to fund this, this project, at least the this, this survey collection in its early stages. Um, so I'm very grateful for his work and, and for his funding. Um, 
All right, well, I want to, um, to to wrap up sooner rather than later, but I want to, you know, to give you the chance. Are there are there any things uh, about the paper that I didn't ask? Any uh, any um, sort of last thoughts you'd like to share about this project or you know, how it relates to other things you're working on? So, you know, I, the 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 broad sort of area of legal education is is something of interest to me and is sort of informing. Um, uh, I should say, been forming a, a, a nice sort of stick in the bundle of sticks that is my research agenda. And um, I, I've really, uh, you know, enjoyed, I guess, the the positive sort of um, feedback that I've gotten this, on this article from folks like you and Cassie Christopher at Texas Tech and, and Jerry Organ at St. Thomas and others. Um, you know, this is the issue of, of student loan indebtedness is, is, is a real concern, I think, um, that needs to be addressed. And there, as I said earlier, there's no um, sort of silver bullet, as it were, to, to address that issue. But I think that the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program is one that definitely um, has benefits that outweigh its costs and, and deserves our consideration um, going forward. Well, thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us and for talking about the paper. Um, I look forward to seeing where you place this new article, uh, which is available on SSRN. We'll post uh, a link um, and um, um, some data in the in the show notes. So thanks a lot for joining. Thank you, Matt. Right, have a great night. You too. This is a song to celebrate banks because they are full of money and you go into them and all you hear is clinks and clanks or maybe a sound like the wind in the trees on the hills which is the rustling of the thousand dollar bills. Most bankers dwell in marble halls which they get to dwell in because they encourage deposits and discourage withdrawals and particularly because they all observe one rule which woe betides the banker who fails to heed it which is you must never lend any money to anybody unless they don't need it. Oh, you cautious conservative banks, what I know about you. If people are worried about their rent, it is your duty to deny them the loan of one Confederate sou. But suppose people come in and they have a million and they want another million to pile on top of it. Why, you brim with the milk of human kindness and you urge them to accept every drop of it. And you lend them the million, so then they have two million. And this gives them the idea that they would be better off with four. So they already have two million as security, so you have no hesitation in lending them two more. And all the vice presidents nod their heads in rhythm. And the only question asked is, do the borrowers want the money sent or do they want to take it with them? But please do not think that I'm not fond of banks, because I think they deserve our appreciation and thanks. Because they perform a valuable public service in eliminating the jackasses who go around saying that health and happiness are everything and money isn't essential because as soon as they have to borrow some unimportant money to maintain their health and happiness, they starve to death so they can't go around anymore sneering at good old money, which is nothing short of providential.